0: And welcome to the program, Chuck Morse, left-right radio. And My guest is Dr. Richard Creighton. He's the author of Out of Control, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump. Uh, Richard Creighton is a Harvard professor. He's a senior physician at Mass General Hospital, a trained psychoanalyst, and he is the author of our book, which I will briefly hold up so you can see that. Excellent book. Richard, thanks for joining me tonight. Oh, thank you. Richard, I've seen a lot of books over the years um, that have done a psychoanalysis and, and have intersected psychology and politics, but they tended to focus on conservatives and on the right and, and just take a look at their psychology, going all the way back to the to the Frankfurt School at, at Columbia University, where they said that conservatives are secret fascists and all that kind of stuff. But your book is, is a lot more balanced in that you take a look at both sides, and you you define um, an intersection between the ideological beliefs and what makes up the psychology of some of the people that embrace that belief. And, um, And you seem to be suggesting that there has been an enhancement in ideology that is somewhat devoid of practical understanding since the election of Trump. So Comment a bit, a little bit on your thesis for starters.
1: Well, I think politics like any other endeavor uh, has a a psychological basis. And uh, what I've been struck by over the last several decades, actually, is a kind of change in the mindset uh, institutionally in in various places where I think there's developed an increase in intolerance uh, for the uh, expression of, of ideas. And so there appears to be an almost obsessional focus that wants to expunge uh, certain ideas from the, from the marketplace. And that's been exacerbated, certainly made much worse, I think since the election of Donald Trump. Um, probably for a variety of reasons, but uh, Trump uh, is a charismatic figure, a controversial figure. He's a not a very controlled figure. And I think one of the things that you right. see on the left is a great desire to control uh, what's going on in the environment. And then Trump uh, just flies in the face of that mindset. So I think uh, he is an existential threat,
0: if you will, mm-hmm. uh, in their psychology and their sense of well-being. No, I, th- I think that's a brilliant insight in terms of this, you know, desire... I would suggest more on the left than the right to want to control um, a situation uh, politically. And that, that would dovetail to uh, perhaps the, um, the internalization of that personally uh, by people. And um, I've noticed also the increased, um, you know, rancor. Um, I, I, when I started doing this, I, I started at Tufts University doing a radio show back in the late 90s. And I'm, I'm on the right, but I had a lot of liberals on my show, including Professor Noam Chomsky and many others. And while we didn't agree on things often, we, we all kind of got along. There was a civil conversation. There was, you know, ribald talk sometimes, and students would come in and they would they were interested and there was a lot of debate. And then recently, like Stilskin, I went back to Tufts and got a show right after the election of Trump. And the atmosphere was like night and day. There was no, you know, the students were afraid to talk to me. Liberal guests would not come on with me. They wouldn't return my calls. And these are people that know me. And then eventually the anti-bias police reported me and warned me that I would lose the show. And um, because some student was triggered by something I'd said. And I'm very Careful to to you know talk in, in local parentheses. I don't get. I know it's not AM radio. I don't do that. Uh, but the result was that they moved the show to three o'clock in the morning. So I just left. But uh, the atmosphere has become, as you say, it's extremely intolerant, extremely controlled. There's this desire to totally control the debate, and that anyone who deviates from the sort of the received wisdom is called these very damaging names and, and, and reported. Well,
1: I think one of the things was a psychoanalyst many years ago was informed by one of my supervisors was to be aware of nice people. <laughs> uh, and I think because in, in a way, many people I think are currently involved in signaling their virtue and trying to be very nice and polite, but generally that, means that there's a lot of anger somewhere that's being repressed. And I think what you're seeing is that anger is being released now uh, and the target is anyone who has a conservative perspective. Um, so the whole political correctness movement, the whole idea of expunging speech, or making places safe, uh, this concept of microaggressions, uh, these are all obsessional tactics Uh, that I think are meant obviously to control others and uh, ultimately I think to uh, scapegoat them, remove them from the marketplace of ideas. If they had their way, I think that is
0: what they would do. And I think that this idea of control is really a great insight because I think it's always been there, but it's becoming hyper um, active in these times because of the election of Trump and because. I mean, Trump is definitely a, an unpredictable character, but I also think that in many ways he's a revolutionary figure in that he is threatening to dismantle the whole liberal edifice going all the way back to uh, to Wilson and, and Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, he's really brought in a question, you know, a hundred years of um, the gradual growth of the super state in this country. And he's if you listen, if you look at his inaugural, it's amazing returning. Now, whether he'll do this or not, that's another question, but he represents this. I mean, the idea is that this is what made him win, I think. And that, you know, the idea of putting America first, these things drive liberals crazy. I mean, uh, you know, but they're basic common sense things that even liberals have, have intoned over the years. But in the case of Trump, he actually seems to mean it. And it's a big threat, I think, politically. And I think the reaction is this 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 kind of hyper controlling um, aspect that is coming very much out to the fore. Well, I I, I would
1: agree with that. I, I think essentially he's uh, done what the young boy did in The Emperor's New Clothes. He's he's saying that essentially uh, this is all an illusion that you're creating here, uh, and it's a fantasy of a of a kind of utopian sense. But it's certainly not pragmatic, and you can't run a country. Uh, on this basis and you know the idea of a country without borders as, as Trump says and many others would say and I think most liberals would have said you know even five years ago uh, oh. is a nonsensical nonsensical idea but now if you challenge that you're, you're you're labeled immediately as a racist or a bigot uh, or worse and uh, you know it just it shuts down free speech and I think the biggest problem that we're encountering here is, uh, at some level, enabling uh, that behavior by not standing up to it more forcefully, and not making it clear and not making clear that it's not going to be tolerated in a in a free or liberal society.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's that's in a sense what Trump has done, even though he's done it sometimes in a rather vulgar and unpleasant way, and he certainly can be cruel. But he does stand up to this control, this political correctness control. And he goes, no, I'm not going to have that. I mean, I mean, I thought that, I mean, just something that really struck me when he, when he first started running is that a reporter said to him, he goes, aren't you concerned that you're going to be labeled as a rich guy like Mitt Romney was labeled and that you'd be super rich? Because as the, and, and Romney, of course, tried to run away from that. And there was all. And Trump goes, no, Romney's not really rich. I you was know, like, wow, that, to me, that was like an eye
1: opener. Well, the beautiful thing I think about Trump is at some level, uh, he doesn't really care that much about what people think of him. He may he may care about how many people are watching him, but I don't think he cares that much about whether they judge him as being a nice person or not so nice a person, where I think most individuals, most people on both sides of the spectrum are concerned about that. And as a result, I think you find everybody kind of falling in line to some level or another. Even the people who support Trump are sure. to come out and 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 say that I'm a Trump supporter for fear of being labeled
0: in a negative way. And also I think that the the Trump supporter, and that, and I include myself in that, we're not, you know, there's not a hero worship. It's I mean I think that Obama had a cult worship. I mean, you would never hear him criticized. But it's a more normal hope and and kind of a wary respect. You know, conservatives don't worship government. You know, we're fearful of government. We want to, uh, you know, keep a suspicious eye at government because government is power. In a sense, I suppose you might say psychologically, it's the opposite of of the of the liberals of the left in that we don't want the government to control. We want to have the maximum amount of, of control to the extent that it's, it's, it's natural over our own lives and destiny. We don't want, you know, we want the government to protect that, but we, we don't look to government and we don't look to government figures. You very rarely see like a conservative treated with this kind of iconic worship that you, you'd see somebody like an Obama or the Clintons um, you know, we maybe may respect things about, like, for example, Reagan. We respected aspects of him, but I never heard this worship. It just—it's not part of the the conservative mind. It's not—it's not the way conservatives look at the world. Uh, I
1: think that's true. I think there's a, an idealization that goes along with this whole obsessional mindset. It's part of uh, what they what they're looking at, kind of globally. But I think what's interesting to me is how much emphasis they put on process uh, and, and style as opposed to actual uh, accomplishment. So someone like Trump may misspeak. He may not be terribly articulate, but he's certainly more effective than any president I recall in my lifetime Yeah, uh, as compared to an Obama or, or even a Clinton uh, who obviously could present themselves
0: perhaps in, in a more attractive way, but right. with very little done. Um, I think he's probably the most effective president since Roosevelt, in a way, in terms of actually getting stuff done and and against an incredible amount of opposition, not only in this country here, but in the world. Um, It's really amazing, actually.
1: Yeah, he's really, in some ways, a very extraordinary character. Uh, For him to have gotten what he's gotten done in the course of less than two years, uh, and as you said, in the face of... uh, incredible resistance and uh, all types of negativity, uh, with no support from the press. It's
0: quite astonishing that he wakes up every morning and seems to get something else accomplished. And you mentioned this, this phenomena amongst liberals of, like, taking positions and saying things and looking a certain way, as if that in and of itself is doing something. And uh, I think that's a lot of this business about race identity and ethnic identity that if they nod in that direction and say, "You know, we want to support someone for office because they happen to be African-American or they happen to be gay or they happen to be a woman or whatever it is," that, that they feel that they've done something. Whereas it's, it's, a lot of it is just uh, it, it's, it's visual. it's an image. Whereas I think with Trump, he's actually he is doing things to to improve race relations in the real sense. He's reducing unemployment. He treats minorities the same way he treats everyone else. He understands what people want. They want to they want to work. They want to have a, have a, you know a sovereign life. And you know, a, a, and I think that um, in a way the left is projecting because a lot of their policies have actually hurt minorities over over the past many many decades. And it's something that it, they would never, ever address, even though it can be demonstrated very easily. So this whole attack on not just President Trump, but on anyone who would dare to support him as having something against minorities, yeah. it, it's so divisive and it's so damaging to the, to the delicate fabric that this country has anyway with race relations and so self-serving that uh, I just, um, you know, and it didn't work for them with Trump and yet they seem to be ramping it up more than ever. Well, I mean, it works for at least half
1: the country and I would suggest it actually works for more than half the country in many respects. You know, I'm not sure I've been able to clarify in my own mind and I think I try to make the point in the book uh, why uh, race relationships have been raised to the level that they have of, of importance in this country, uh, how questions of gender or homosexuality or LGTP rights. Uh, I mean, these, these are issues that are really of, of minor importance, I think, to most people in their everyday life. Uh, and yet, they've become extraordinary issues, uh, extraordinary importance for for certainly people on the left, but I think even people on the right for who who are concerned about being labeled uh, bigots or racists. It's uh, some, somehow the whole message has been co opted by the left, and uh, there's really no basis for it.
0: No, but yet it's it's the biggest tool in their in their toolbox. It's the uh... And it serves, I think, many purposes. It serves a dialectical purpose of dividing people. And it's also a weapon that they can use against anyone who uh, is an opponent of theirs. And they've done it successfully. And usually uh, nobody wants to be called these kinds of names. It's, it's ugly. It's, it's damaging. It could hurt you, your career. It could hurt your reputation. I mean, so you know, conservatives buckle under the, the pressure. They get weak need in, in the face of that. And I understand that. College students keep quiet because they don't want to bring on that kind of attention to themselves. So they keep their heads low and they get through college. And uh, you know, it, it's really tyrannical, actually. And I think that you mentioned earlier this business about uh, microaggression theory, which was actually first coined by by Harvard professor Charles Pierce back in the 1980s, and now has become mainstream. And it's it's the ultimate tyranny, because you can take a look under a microscope, it, it, by definition, micro, at, at someone and, and detect like a, a racist gene or, or like, you know, or project something that because they looked at something a certain way or they, you know, some little nuance, they they're, therefore they're racist. And I mean, talk about a level of control. And uh, I've never seen anything getting this bad. Well, I think the first
1: thing to understand psychologically speaking is that when you run into individuals who make these types of accusations, these are essentially what we call projections. And these are individuals who actually are racist themselves, are bigoted themselves. And uh, on, their, on the surface, clearly they're not. But if you scratch the surface, that's what you find. And as a result of that, you, you see this tremendous anger being directed at other people. There's no other way to explain it.
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, I think I said, I don't know if they're racist and I mean, they're they're race obsessed, I would say. No, I would say they're racist. Really?
1: Okay. Yes, I would. I I would say that uh, when you try to actually get underneath the surface of them, that's indeed what you will find, uh, that they're condescending. Uh, both to minorities that they 're condescending to people of different genders, despite the fact that superficially uh, they they certainly will be embracing them, uh, but there would be no other reason to see this level of anger uh, if there wasn 't something that was truly bothering them internally i mean that 's just yeah.
0: a psychological it 's like the old Shakespearean saying that thinks the lady doth protest too much absolutely that 's exactly you know, there's, there's certainly this kind of condescending white man's burden attitude, which is racist. I mean, that that a black person somehow needs to be managed by the great white administrator. I mean, they don't know any black people. I mean, they don't realize that, you know, people have just the same interests as everyone else. I mean, this whole business about, you know, that they need to, they can't have reasonable voter registration because somehow a black person can't get a, a license. I mean, how do you buy a pack of beer without a license? It's ridiculous. It's, you know, it's, it's just a, it actually is a demonstration of a, kind of the Rudyard Kipling late 19th century white man's burden view of, of minorities that they need to be ministered over.
1: Well, and, I think yeah. it's part of the end goal of progressivism uh, and always has been since Wilson. You know, it's, uh, it's just becoming extreme. The idea is, uh, don't, don't you worry about it. We'll, let the government worry about it. We'll take care of you. And it's certainly true for how they've treated you know, the African-Americans uh, in, in all of the cities run by the Democratic Party for the last 60 years. Um, Absolutely. And, and so there is this underlying condescension, and there is this underlying racism bigotry on the part of the Democrats, on the part of the left, except it's unconscious. And as a result, it gets projected onto conservative figures uh, with a vengeance.
0: And uh, yeah, and, and it's a very, ne- it's it's a classic example, as you say, of Freudian projection, you know, that it, r- rather than look at myself, I'm going to project the negative qualities of myself on my perceived opponent. And um, yeah, I think that when, in a sense, um, you know, I've heard, you um, I don't know if you've ever heard Jeff Kuhner, the talk show host on WRKO in Boston. His parents grew up in a communist country. He says that um, something they always told him is that when when the country, whatever they were screaming the loudest about, was what they were doing.
1: Well, sure. Look at this whole Russian collusion. I mean, it's a wonderful example. Uh, I see very little, if any, evidence there was any Russian collusion on the part of the Trump campaign but there certainly seems to be an abundance of evidence that Hillary Clinton was involved in colluding with Russia to get this uh, particular dossier. Uh, so, I mean, it's just uh, nonsense at some level. And uh, my message is really that to the extent that it's possible, a conservative should really begin to pay little attention to what these people are, are labeling you as because
0: they're just talking about themselves. I think that's a brilliant observation. and. Um... The other thing that I find quite ironic about this so-called Russia Trump thing is that uh, wasn't this what they were squawking about in the 1940s and 50s when there were real Russian colluders in the government? I mean, you know, and and, and somebody that investigated that people like Alger Hiss. I mean, these people were working with Stalin and, and all of a sudden that's you can't talk about that. But that's another subject for, for another day. But uh, this is an interesting Kind of a re, you know reversal of um uh, they're doing the same thing they accuse conservatives of doing and and by the way good liberals too back then mm-hmm. uh, when they were concerned about uh, the Russian infiltration of the government you know well
1: yes I mean uh, up until very recently uh, the Democratic Party and the left has always been a strong supporter or at least more tolerant uh, of what's going on uh, in, in Russia than anyone on the right has ever been. So the tables have turned. Uh, and again, you know, I think it, it's difficult to sort out. I think this is taking place at two different levels. I mean, there is a level that's purely political and it's purely being driven by power and mm-hmm. people in, in Congress, uh, in the democratic party, I think at this point would say virtually anything uh, that they needed to to regain power, but for the rest of the population, it's a different story, and it's uh, you know there are individuals who are being indoctrinated uh, in the schools uh, in a certain uh, to a certain mindset. They're hearing it constantly on social media. They're hearing it constantly in the mainstream uh, media. So it's very difficult for them to like sort out what what is real and what is not. Um, now, up until not that long ago, I, I used to get my news from CNN. And I watched during the Trump campaign and I watched Trump's speeches and I watched the commentary afterwards. And I said, there's no connection uh, to what I just saw and what this commentary is about. And after that, I turned it out and only watched Fox.
0: Well, I know what you mean. And I've never seen the media more blatantly partisan. And in fact, you know, they always have had a slight partisan angle. I mean, uh, you know, like old Walter Cronkite, that's the way it is. Um, I think Douglas Brinkley, his biographer, kind of blew the, um, you know, kind of let the cat out of the bag in terms of how left wing he was. But putting it aside, I mean, he had to at least act somewhat objective in in front of the camera. Now they're just, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. And they're talking in a way, you you know, you talk psychological stuff. It's this constant drumbeat of trivialities day after day. Um, You know, the other day I was tuned into MSNBC just at different moments throughout the day and the night, just to see what they were talking about. And they were talking about the same thing, which was a non-story where the president mm-hmm. Trump as a 10 years ago had signed, a, uh, signed a, an agreement to, to ask a, a woman he'd had an affair with to be quiet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this isn't really something that belongs in the major media that maybe is okay for the gossip column. But to, to be talking about this all day and constantly mentioning it, and today, too, is the same thing, uh, that's, a, that's a, I mean, it's psychologically an attempt to really massively influence people and wrap people up in, in, in almost a, a condition where they're, 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 they're losing touch with bigger realities.
1: Well, it's certainly obsessional, uh, if, if, if you want to. Put it
0: in those terms,
1: but I, I think what they find intolerable is that these self-styled elites, you know, from academics and uh, have really been outsmarted by a, a New York businessman. And no matter what they do, it seems to roll off his back or just bounce off of him. And he just keeps going out every day and accomplishing more and more. And I think it, it just makes them feel extremely insecure and uh, really piques their narcissism and their anger about it.
0: Okay, my guest is Richard Creighton. The book is Out of Control. He's the author, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump. I just want to again let people see this. It's excellent. I, I cannot recommend it more highly. Um, Richard, as we approach the midterm elections, I already can sense uh, that things are going to get uglier and nastier. Now they're like, you know, Attacking Trump cabinet members when they were at restaurants. They—I uh, just read that they vandalized um, Betsy DeVos's yacht. Um, they smashed Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You know, it. I mean, I'm not. I, I would almost expect that we might see violence. And um, you know, I mean, you had Cory Booker get up in the U.S. Senate and refer to. Um, Uh, Supreme Court nominee uh, Brett Kavanaugh as evil and and, and this kind of overwrought um, activity. What do you see coming down the pike in terms of the next couple of months as we move toward the midterm elections? Well, I
1: I wish I could say I saw something good, but I don't. Um, And it wouldn't surprise me if things do get violent. But I, I think again, the message has to be you know, it would be like having a child having a temper tantrum. Somehow the adults in the room need to contain uh, things. And if people are breaking laws, and I think they are left and right, uh, they may not be laws that usually are enforced, but they are enforceable. Uh, if they're breaking these laws, then, you know, law, law enforcement needs to step in and send a message. Uh, and if people are invading your space in a restaurant, the proprietor of the restaurant uh, should be calling the police to get these people out of there. Uh, somehow that doesn't seem to be taking place, and I'm no. not. sure Why not? Uh, there are even things that you know, Mr. Trump could probably do to uh, help defuse some of these things, and he doesn't do. So right. I'm not quite sure why things are being allowed to. Get foment to this level uh, where it is going to erupt into some form of violence. But that seems to be what everybody unconsciously uh, seems to want it to see
0: happen. Well, I mean, if they really keep pushing the envelope, they're going to, I think, ultimately shoot themselves in the foot. Because um, the average Americans who are neither left or right, who are just, uh, you know, they they're just are generally interested in the welfare of their country and of their, their lives, they're going to see it. They're going to see this for what it is, and it's going to turn them off. At least that's my hope. I mean, I I don't know, but um, that's what I hope is coming down. But anyway, Richard, um, please, um, because we're reaching the end of the program, please let my listeners know where they can get your book. If there's any website you'd like to give out, any information about you, please do so.
1: Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's available at bonds & Noble, and that would be the best way to get it. And other than that, I don't think there's any other information that I need to convey. Richard, how is it that you're at Harvard? It's a good question. Uh, I've been there for a long time, uh, and I've seen it undergo a progressive change. And I guess along the lines of what we're talking about, from my perspective, not necessarily for the better, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, I'm, I'm at the age where I'm about ready to retire. And so uh, it's, it's tolerable at that level. And I would think to be you know, 15 years younger than I am at the moment. Um, I mean, one of the sad things is, you know, I work at the medical school and I, I wouldn't want to detract from the level of uh, care being at the hospitals or, or the level of, of medicine that's being taught. Uh, but the institution has become politicized. And uh, a hospital, for instance, where I work at Mass General, uh, in the past, not a political institution. It was a place where doctors of many different opinions practiced medicine and uh, everyone was entitled to their personal views. It's not that way anymore. It's become a politically correct institution. Like so many academic institutions, it's an an extension of all of it. And so free speech at an institution is not what it used to be.
0: Yeah, and I mean this whole uh, the business of Trump's success has really triggered a lot of people. I actually had a a a, a, a therapist who uh, told me that he would not see me anymore after Trump won, um, oh, no, and no, he was completely no, no. unglued over it. Well, that's really very
1: sad. You know, I'm in the midst of writing a, a, a book at the moment that has to do with um, just this issue and the practice of psychotherapy because morality is a is a big issue in psychotherapy. And the psychotherapy community is pretty homogeneous and oriented, oriented towards conservative voices in psychotherapy. But, you know, it, it's troublesome. I've seen, for instance, patients over the Course of my career, uh, who are transsexuals. Uh, in the past, uh, they were rightly labeled, I, I believe, uh, as being severely mentally disturbed. You know, essentially quasi psychotic. Um, mm. and, and now it's become a an accepted norm, or even something that's uh, touted as a positivity. Uh, well, it's very difficult to practice psychotherapy in that type of setting uh, because it's.
0: There might be a happy What if somebody What's comes somebody to a therapist talking? and says, "You know, I'm you know, I'm struggling with some it's of these vicious. issues," and and I want to talk, I it want to talk it through? Does the therapist, the therapist say, that's say, "That's too bad, bad. That's who you are."
1: No, I, no, I don't think so. I, I think you you get to talk it through, but you don't uh, normalize it. You know, there are some things that right. are still right. uh, out of the norm and, and need to be considered such in order to talk it through in a, in a therapeutic manner. But that's uh, no longer the, the mainstream of thought in, in the community. So it's, it really mm-hmm. raises major questions about morality and, and what's normal in, in, in the society. Well, it sounds like therapy has yeah. been politicized. It has become politicized uh, very much. So that's too bad.
0: Too bad. All right, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. a a A pleasure. A pleasure.